First uh, Samuel chapter 26. If you have a, a title in your Bible right above the chapter number for chapter 26 that we'll be looking at today, it probably says something like, David spares Saul a second time. And that title sounds kind of ironic because in the story, it starts out with Saul chasing David, you know, and not the other way around. And uh, just as funny as the Lord does things sometimes, that here the, uh, the title there is that David's going to spare Saul's life, even though Saul's chasing David. Kind of funny, yeah. So uh, he's got a way of, the Lord has a way of taking the enemy's plans and turning them around on him, and we love to see that. So we praise the Lord that he does things that way. Let's jump into uh, verse 1 here. It says, Now the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is David not hiding in the hill of Hachalah opposite Jeshimon? Then Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having 3,000 chosen men of Israel with him to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. Now, wait a minute. I thought Saul was not chasing David anymore, if you remember from earlier. So, you know, what's up with this? Uh, look back to the last encounter we saw between David and King Saul when David had an opportunity to kill him in the cave, if you remember, but instead he let Saul live. And then after the incident, he's calling to Saul and telling him what's going on there. So look back to chapter 24 a second, just so we can check this on there. It says... Uh, in chapter four down, or chapter twenty-four, I'm sorry, down to verse uh, sixteen. It says, "So it was when David had finished speaking these words to Saul, that Saul said, "Is this your voice, my son David?" And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. Then he said to David, "You are more righteous than I, for you have rewarded me with good, whereas I have rewarded you with evil, and you have shown this day how you have dealt with me." For when the Lord delivered me into your hand, you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him get away safely? Therefore, the Lord, may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now I know indeed that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. And then he says, therefore, swear uh, now that the Lord, uh, you will not cut off my descendants after me and you'll just not destroy my name from my father's house. So at that point in time, it looked like Saul was, uh, man, I made a big mistake, sorry for chasing you, and he left. And it looked like, okay, this is better for David, no problem. Now all of a sudden, in chapter 26 here, we've got Saul taking up arms and, and uh, getting his guys here to go back after him again. So it looked like originally Saul was sorry for trying to kill David, uh, David and he had given up on chasing him. But now we see the Ziphites have got Saul all stirred up again and charged up to go. So these people, it mentions there in verse 1, the Ziphites. We've seen them before too, if you remember. That was back in chapter 23. And it said this about them in verse 19. <clears throat> said, then the Ziphites came up to Saul at Gibeah, same location, saying, is David not hiding with us in the strongholds in the woods, in the hill of Hachalah, which is on the south of Jeshimon? Now therefore, O king, come down according to all the desire of your soul to come down, and our part shall be to deliver him into the king's hands. So these people showed up at the same place that they did last time when they got Saul stirred up. And if you check a map on that area, these people traveled about 25 miles just to snitch on David's whereabouts. Okay, 
That's a long way to go, even in our time period, just to snitch on somebody. So you wonder, what's up with these people, you know? Well, their name, Ziphites, it means troublemakers. No, it doesn't really mean that, but that's, that's what these people are. They're troublemakers, you know? Because twice we see them show up, and uh, they're trying to get David killed. And uh, what they're really after, I think, is trying to get some points from King Saul here. But uh, the amazing thing is, later on, when, when David becomes the king of Israel, he has an opportunity. He can deal with these folks and really pay them back, and uh, he doesn't. He's very gracious toward them. So David gives us some amazing pictures of God's grace as we see how he deals with things. So uh, these people here, they do cause trouble. They are troublemakers. And, and you know, it's interesting. There are some folks that you run into that they just like to stir other people up, you know, and get folks in trouble. And that seems to be the thrill of their life for some reason. So from what we can see from the last time they told Saul about David, it appeared they were trying to get some favor, recognition, you know, for turning him in. So these people look like greedy money grabbers to me. Uh, they don't mind throwing somebody under the bus as long as they can get something out of it for themselves. Yeah. So Saul uh, blindly listens to these people. I mean, it's like we haven't heard from Saul for a little bit, and all of a sudden now he's ready to go again, you know. So he just apparently forgets his last encounter with David when they made peace with each other. So he goes, he gathers up his chosen men, 3,000 of them, and takes off after David again. You know, Saul is obviously, obviously he's messed up in his head at this point. Uh, he's going after David again and again and again. You know, even after he admitted, we just read that, he admitted that he knows David's going to be the next king. And Lord is doing that. He's aware of that. So we understand at this point that Saul is not very stable mentally. Okay? So come down to verse 3, back in uh, chapter 26. It says, And Saul encamped in the hill of Hachilah, so he goes down to that area, which is opposite Jeshimon by the road. But David stayed in the wilderness, and he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness. And it says, David therefore sent out spies, and he understood that Saul had indeed come. So David has been alerted, and he's keeping his eye on the situation. Uh, David's enemy is coming after him again. <laughs> and David's probably thinking, this is getting old. You know, I thought we were past this. Why is this happening again? And I think the answer to that question appears to be because the Lord has not done testing yet, David. You still have things that he wants to go send you through to prove you to be the next king of Israel. So we get a good lesson on this. We have an enemy too, the devil. And he is relentless too. You know, he may take a reprieve for a while, but he will be back because he is relentless. If you want to look at Luke chapter 4 for a minute, I know you're aware of this passage, but this is uh, when the Lord was tempted by the devil there, uh, when Jesus had his earthly ministry. And in Luke chapter 4, it says this in verse 13. It was at the end of the trial, and it said, Now when the devil had ended every temptation, so he finished the temptations he was bringing to Christ, it says he departed from him until an opportune time. So even though Jesus soundly whooped the devil at that meeting in Luke chapter 4, uh, the devil left, but it was just for a time. He was coming back again. And, and that's what the enemy does. So uh, we need to be aware of that, that we have an enemy. He's going to be relentless too, and we just need to keep our guard up. You know, so David, 
He's learning that along the way, that you just can't stop uh, being alert because the enemy may be coming at any time. So back in our passage in 1 Samuel 26, if you look down to verse 5, it said, So David arose, and he came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay, and Abner the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Now Saul lay within the camp with the people encamped all around him. So this is at night when they're, they're bedding down and going to rest and probably the next day take up the hunt again. And Saul is in a very secure place. He's basically, from the description you see there, he's basically in the center of the camp and his soldiers were surrounding him. So uh, these are, the idea there is if you want to get to Saul, you're going to have to get through every one of these guys first before you get there. So it's a good, good strategy, a good plan, you know, that he's protected here. And humanly speaking, he's about as safe as you could be at that time. But when you're not on God's side, then all your preparations and all your precautions really don't amount to much. And we'll see that in a story here. So verse 6 goes on. Then David answered, and he said to Ahimelech, the Hittite, and to Abishai, the son of Zerai. Uh, these are the guys that are, are closest to him here as soldiers. Uh, he's the brother of Joab. And here's what he said. Who will go down with me to Saul in the camp? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David asks, you know, if any of his soldiers want to go down to Saul. And notice that he doesn't just say go down to the camp. But he's talking about going right up to where Saul was sleeping. Because he said, coming to Saul. (laughs) And like we said, he's fully protected. He's got all these guys all around him. So David's asking who wants to go down there with me? We're going to go right in the middle of this, okay? So that it looks like a mission that you're probably not going to live to talk about unless the Lord would supernaturally somehow protect you because it's designed to stop anybody from coming there, and David wants to go right there. And we see something about David. You know, it's interesting. The Lord keeps showing us kind of little bits and pieces of David's character as we watch how he does things. He didn't run away from danger. He ran toward it, Okay? And there are some people who run toward danger, you know, people like firefighters, paramedics, emergency personnel, uh, soldiers who've been trained to respond to danger. And we're glad that there are people like that who will risk their own lives to save the lives of others, right? David was one of those kind of guys. Here's a king who's gone crazy. He's coming after you with 3,000 of his best soldiers. And instead of running away, you go toward these guys. That's amazing. And you know, the Lord tells us not to fear. Over and over again, the Lord tells us, do not be afraid. He's promised to always be with us. So we really don't have to be afraid. And David here, he's a really good example of it. At least at this point, he's a good example. He's going to have some problems later on. But in this situation, it's like, you don't see an ounce of fear in this guy. It's like, I just need anybody who wants to go with me. One of you guys, that's good, let's go. It only takes one other guy and we'll march through these 3,000 guys and just walk up to King Saul, okay? Yeah, what faith he's got at this point, huh? Uh, Verse seven goes on. So David and Abishai came to the people by night and there Saul lay sleeping within the camp with his spear stuck in the ground by his head. Remember that spear, he's always got it close by and Talked about the danger of having a crazy guy with a spear. Well, 
He's got it right next to his head. And Abner and the people lay all around him. And Abner is his, his general, basically. It says, then Abishai said to David, God has delivered your enemy into your hands this day. He says, now therefore, please, let me strike him at once with the spear, right to the earth, and I will not have to strike him a second time. <laughs> so Abishai realizes that God has intervened, intervened here, and he's delivered Saul into David's hand. Okay? He knew that there was no way they could get this close to Saul without at least one of his soldiers or his big commander, Abner, waking up. So Abishai also knows that David would probably not kill Saul. That's why he's asking, would you let me do this? Because you remember last time, you know, he saw that David had great respect for Saul because he was God's anointed king of Israel. And he's thinking, I know David's going to not want to do anything here, but we're here and we can take care of this right now. So Abishai just about begs David to let him finish this thing by killing Saul himself. You know, he even explains how, how easy it would be and how thorough he would be at it. You know, he, he wouldn't need three strikes uh, or even two strikes. One strike would do, right? Uh, Abishai was probably thinking, look, it's a miracle that we're this close to victory. We're just a few feet away. And it's the second time the Lord gave us a chance like this. So we can't expect a third opportunity like this one. Let's just get this over with here and now, please. So this guy, Abishai, he's playing the part of the tempter. And what a temptation this would be. I mean, think about this. Saul admitted last time that he was wrong for seeking to kill David, and he appeared to stop coming after David, right, for good. But then he wakes up one day, and he decides to put David back on the bad guy list. <laughs> so he, he theoretically, he gets out all the wanted posters back out of the trash and rehangs them again and starts the manhunt all over. So how many times is the same thing going to happen? You just can't trust Saul, you know, to ever really give up on this thing. And then on top of that, you have this trained soldier, Abishai, who volunteers, you know, to take him out with one blow. You just say the word and this is all over. What a temptation, you know? Put yourself in David's shoes. All the pressure could be over in just a moment here. There are times like this, you know, when, when we have a choice, you and me, between taking the easy way out, you know, by that temptation we're hearing, or continuing to trust the Lord and do things his way, even though we know that choice is going to involve a much harder way to go. You know, David shows us a great example here of doing things God's way and just trusting him for the outcome. You know, remember, when we trust the Lord and we do things his way, we end up with a testimony. If we do things our own way, we miss the opportunity for seeing the testimony. There's no testimony on that side of things. So let's look at verse 9. But David said to Abishai, after this amazing offer and amazing temptation, David says, do not destroy him. For who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? So not only does David not kill Saul, but he doesn't allow Abishai to do it either. And he explains why this would be the wrong thing to do. First, he said, you'd be coming against God's anointed. He continues to call him God's anointed. And you know, we may not like God's choice for who he puts in leadership, 
but we had better acknowledge that it was God's choice to put that person in that role. The Bible tells us in the book of Daniel that the Lord removes kings and he raises up kings. And the Lord repeats that theme through the book of Daniel over and over again. Then if you want to look at Psalm 75 with me, this is another passage that that shows us that same principle. And uh, these are good things to be aware of that the Lord Lord lets us in on why things happen the way they do. Because sometimes you look and say, how did that guy ever get in charge? And uh, the Lord says, I did that. I had a reason for it. In uh, uh, Psalm 75, if you look down to verse 6, it says, For exaltation comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. So, well, who exalts people? It says, but God is the judge. He puts down one, and he exalts another. And that's the passage we read earlier uh, when we started this morning. So the Lord makes that call. And when he puts people in charge, he has a reason for it. You know, we we had our last president who seemed to do a lot to try to come against our nation, do things that were destructive and and pull things down. And we're still suffering repercussions of some of the things that uh, were done back then. And we may have scratched our heads and said, why in the world would that happen? But then you step back and look, you know, our nation's been doing some wicked things for a long time. We've been killing babies by the droves and haven't stopped as of yet. So for the Lord to put someone in charge to say, hey, if you guys want to destroy your future, I'll help you with that, you know? We, we can't argue with that with the Lord doing what he does. So like in David's place, case here, you know, he clearly understood that Saul was only in leadership because God had put him there. And man, that's hard to live with, you know, when the Lord allows an ungodly person to be in charge. But we need to respect God's choice. You know, he has a reason for everything he does, even though we may not understand it at the time. And secondly, uh, David brings this up in uh, verse 9-2. He says, who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Uh, David says, if a person comes against the Lord's anointed, then he will bear the guilt for that in the eyes of the Lord. So he's saying, this isn't just a matter of killing an evil king. It's not that simple. There's guilt on the other side of doing such a thing. So I appreciate David's wisdom in, in looking what would happen down the road. You know, he's thinking, if, if, this, if we do this, we're gonna get the guilt. That's what's coming down the road for us. We're not clean on that one. We're not gonna be appreciated by the Lord and say, good job, guys, you, you did a good job here. That's not the Lord's point in allowing this, and David knows that. You know, many times we're tempted to do something that goes against God's will And we don't take time to stop and think about what is this going to cost us down the road. So I'm thankful David pulls that out. He didn't want to live with the guilt of killing God's anointed king. He knows God's going to put some guilt on you for that. So what a great respect David had for doing things God's way. You know, if our nation held the things of the Lord in such high honor as David did, we'd be living in such a, a better society than we see today. You know, we'd have much more peace, much more respect for people, much less crime, much less murder. It'd stop the, the murder of the unborn altogether. Who wouldn't want to live in such a beautiful environment, you know? Yeah, the, the world is going to get to see such a place when Jesus comes back and sets up his millennial kingdom. And you and I are going to get to see that too, being in Christ. Because the Bible says that we'll be ruling and reigning with him in our glorified bodies.
So we really look forward to that day where we get to see what this world could be like if Jesus took control and said, this is the way it's going to be, guys. We're going to do things right. We're going to do things that are pleasing to the Lord. We're going to stop harming each other. And uh, this is, we'll get to see that. That'll be pretty cool. So uh, verse 10 goes on. David said, furthermore, as the Lord lives, the Lord shall strike him. He's talking about King Saul. He's going to take care of this. Or his day shall come to die. He'll live until he dies of old age and it's his last day on earth. Or he shall go out to battle and perish. So he's saying there's some options here the Lord could take in taking him out himself. He could just have the guy die. I mean, look at Nabal. (laughs) The Lord just took him out. It was over for the guy, right? We saw him in the story before. He said he could send him out to battle and he could get killed there. So the Lord has a way of dealing with him and uh, David's very willing to leave that in the Lord's hands. So David said, God's alive. He starts by telling him that. And it's totally up to him to decide when and how King Saul should die. You know, David shows a great example here of just trusting the Lord. You know, if we trust God enough to just let God do what God says he will do, what a burden is lifted off of us. It's amazing just how many times we are tempted to play God and just take things in our own hands. And how much grief we could avoid if we just got out of the way and let God do his thing. Verse 11 goes on. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. So David is asking that the Lord wouldn't even allow him to do such a thing. And what a great prayer for us, you know, before we take things in our own hands. Say, Lord, please help me stop before I cross a line and do something when I'm trying to do your job rather than just allowing you to do what you're going to do. That's a great prayer because you're saying, I don't want to bear that guilt down the road. I don't want to live with that. So, Lord, please stop me before I do something foolish here. And you notice, too, that, that David continues here to call Saul the Lord's anointed. <laughs> I wonder how many times David had to keep reminding himself of that fact during the 10 years when Saul was hunting him down. You know, and we may need to keep reminding ourselves of the truth of God's word concerning our situation. There's absolutely nothing wrong with reminders. So don't, don't ever say, oh, I, I can just stop that. No, you need to keep reminding yourself of what the Lord said. So verse 11 goes on, as he said, the Lord forbid I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointing, but please take now the spear and the jug of water that are by his head and let us go. So David does have a plan, right? He's going to take these items that were the closest things to Saul where he was lying, and he's going to use them as proof that he could have easily killed Saul if he wanted to. (laughs) You know, even here though, David was taking a risk because in his mind, he's going to try to use this evidence, you know, that he's going to carry with him out of there. He's going to try to use that to convince Saul that he's not going to kill him. Even if he had a chance, he's not going to do that, okay? And his thinking makes sense to us. I mean, you've got the evidence to say, I was right by your head. It could have been over for you. You could have not, you know, uh, you didn't have to wake up. I could have fixed it so you didn't even have that, that option. So it makes sense to us to think this one through. But the risky part for David comes when you think about Saul accepting this evidence and believing David. Because it's risky, not because uh, David's got any 
problem with his thinking that it's off, but because Saul is pretty loony at this time in his life, you know, and you're going to try to reason with a madman, uh, you know, using good old common, uh, common sense here, uh, and you may, may not get too far trying to do that, unfortunately, but David's going to give it a try anyway, you know. I'm sure you've tried this before too, try to reason with somebody and they already got their mind made up and they're already doing their thing. So no matter what you say, you can talk for hours and they're not going to budge, right? So David's going to do this thing and it's amazing to watch how the Lord steps into this. So verse 12, so David took the spear and the jug of water by Saul's head and they got away. So they climbed back out of those 3,000 men barrier that was there and no man saw or knew it, or awoke. For they were all asleep, and look why, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. So the Lord lets us in on a big secret here. He was working behind the scenes. He had these guys fall asleep and they were not gonna wake up. <laughs> he sent an anesthesiologist there to knock these guys out for a while, while uh, David was able to walk right in there, right? And, and God does this so many times in our life where he's working behind the scenes. I think it's going to be interesting in eternity when the Lord shows us how many times he had our back because he was working behind the scenes and we didn't even know he was doing that. Now, I think it's, here, it's pretty cool here too how the Lord shows how thorough he was in keeping David and Abishai safe. It says here that nobody saw what happened and even knew about it, so they didn't even know what happened, or even woke up. Nobody even woke up. So can you imagine? There wasn't even anybody stirring from their sleep, you know, and looking over at a maybe sleepy-eyed and groggy, nothing. God is so amazing <laughs> that there wasn't going to be one person who even saw this. So in their mind, they laid down, Saul is secure, there's no problem here. And when they woke up, all of a sudden things are missing. How did he do that? You know, he must be a magician or something. How did he get past all of us? Can you imagine what these guys were thinking? So in what the Lord's doing here, he's trying to show a few things. One, he's letting Saul's soldiers know that God can override anything they can come up with to protect their king, right? He's in charge and you can do your best as a human to try to do this, but it doesn't make any difference. Kind of reminds you when they tried to seal the tomb where the apostles couldn't come and take Jesus' body, right? They thought, uh, we'll just put a guard around him and there's nobody going to get through the guard. It only took a couple angels to shake up things a little bit there and all of a sudden, God's in control anyway, right? Secondly, God's letting David know that God was protecting him and he is going to make David the next king and God is not going to allow anything to happen that's going to interfere with that. I don't care if it's 3,000 men sleeping around a king to guard him. It's not going to stop God's plan, okay? So David was going to need to hear that because in a little while, he's going to have some doubts whether he's really safe and whether God's plan for his life is ever going to happen. You know, it's easy for us to trust God when we see a direct, clear answer to prayer, right? It becomes a little harder to trust God when we've been praying and praying and we've not seen the answer to that prayer yet. So later on, David's going to go through one of those times when he's not sure that God's really there for him, even though you're thinking the amazing faith this guy had to take on Goliath, and now the amazing faith to just tiptoe through 3,000, you know, 
tremendous soldiers here and come to the king. And yet this guy's going to have some, some worries and doubts and fears in the next chapter there. But let's go on here in verse 13. It says, Now David went over to the other side, and he stood on the top of a hill afar off, a great distance being between them. So David wasn't stupid. <laughs> he took precautions here. In case any of Saul's men woke up and decided to chase David, uh, he wanted to make sure there's some distance between them so it would give him a good head start. Now, there's nothing wrong with us taking a few precautions as long as we're not violating God's will when we do so. That's what you want to be careful of. So verse 14 goes on. David called out to the people and to Abner, the son of Ner, and that's the, the commander here. He's, he's the number one bodyguard you know, of Saul and his general of his army, basically. And he knew that this is really going to get Saul's attention. So uh, David calls out to all of them and to specifically to Abner, and he says, Do you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered and said, Who are you calling out to the king? So remember, this is at night, and these guys are sound asleep, and all he's hearing now is this voice shouting his name out, you know, and, and starting to question him about stuff. So Abner wakes up and he says, Who are you? And why are you calling here with the king? You know, what's up? So verse 15, So David said to Abner, Are you not a man? And who is like you in Israel? So it's like, there's nobody better than you. Why then have you not guarded your Lord, the king? I'm sure Abner's like trying to shake himself awake, like, what are you talking about? Saul's right here. Everything's fine, you know? It says, for one of the people came in to destroy your Lord, the king. So he lets him know, you just had a dangerous situation, man. There was a guy right there ready to kill him. So David accuses Abner of not guarding the king. And this was the Lord showing that even though Abner was a mighty soldier, the best in Israel's army, according to what he says here, that even he could not protect the king from God's man, David. David goes on to say that the one person had slipped past him to come and kill the king, and of course, that one man was Abishai, who was with David. And all it takes, you think about this, is one person at the right place, at the right time, and the Lord can change the circumstances forever. Thankfully, Jesus was that one person who was there for us at the right time and in the right place. And through him, the Lord changed the circumstances of our life forever. Verse 16 goes on. This thing that you have done, David's still hollering and shouting to Abner here, this thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives you deserve to die because you have not guarded your master, the Lord's anointed. Man, he's really landed on here. It's like, it's not just a plain old job of guarding your king. This guy is the Lord's anointed and you failed at your job. And now he says, see where the king's spear is and the jug of water that was by his head. So David shows how serious this was because normally, any soldier who failed at their job of guarding the king would be put to death. So I think David was implying that if he had killed Saul that night, then Abner would have been put to death for not doing his job. And that should have sent chills up the spine of Abner because he knows that's true. And especially when he sees that spear and jug of water, he knows this guy is not kidding, whoever is hollering at me, and my life could have been over. Okay, so uh, 
it would have been interesting to see the look on his face when he's hearing these things and then he sees this, this spear that David's holding up here. So verse 17, it says, Then Saul knew David's voice. So he recognized the voice again. And he said, Is that your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. So now Saul is awake and he recognizes David's voice. And David addresses him as his master. He said, my Lord and my king. So there's no rebellion in David's voice at all, just submission, okay? And it's amazing, the craziness going in Saul's head. So verse 18, he said, why does my Lord, this is David still talking here, why does my Lord thus pursue his servant? You know, and what have I done? Or what evil is in my hand? So David begins to state his case here. He says, I'm your servant, not your enemy. You know, why are you pursuing me? And, and truly, who are the enemies? The Philistines are the bad guys. He should be chasing them, not, not David. And then he says, what have I ever done against you, basically? He's asking him, what did I ever do against you? And man, when you think through that one, he did zero against Saul. He did a lot to help him. We mentioned this last time. He's done a lot for him, but nothing against him. So there's no evidence on Saul's side of what he's doing uh, makes any sense at all. So verse 9, he goes on. Uh, David's still given his case here. He said, now therefore, please let my Lord, the king, hear the words of his servant. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, if it's the Lord has got you upset with me, let him accept an offering. He's saying, let me know and I'll go make an offering to the Lord. But if it is the children of men, not the Lord involved, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day from sharing in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. So David continues to call Saul his master, and he keeps calling himself Saul's servant, okay? I guess he's hoping by saying this over and over that it will finally sink into Saul's understanding, you know? I'm going to keep repeating this. Hopefully he'll get it one of these times. So then he goes on to say that if it is the Lord who stirred up Saul to come after him, then please allow David the time to go make a sacrifice to the Lord the way he's supposed to, you know, go to the tabernacle. And that way he'll make things right between him and the Lord. But he says, if this is some men that caused you to get all riled up and come after me, then David asked God to curse those men. Wow. David is trying to impress on Saul that the men who put him up for this were not on the side of the Lord at all. Okay? And, you know, I got a funny feeling that David knew who it was who put him, put him up to this, the Ziphites. I think he was going to find out for sure later on, but I think at this point he knows what's going on. And David gives the reason why he said that God should curse him. Because by their evil actions against David, he's not been allowed to come to the tabernacle. He can't show up there. He can't make his sacrifices to the Lord. So theoretically, all we'd have left would be to go serve idols somewhere. Since you can only make acceptable sacrifices to the Lord at the tabernacle, right? And David had been prevented from going there because he's labeled as a wanted criminal. So he's saying, if these guys did this, they're stopping me from worshiping the Lord. So let the Lord curse these guys if that's what they're doing. Uh, if they, and they did, there were guys that set him up, right? So verse 20, so now do not let my blood fall to the earth. Notice what he says, before the face of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a flea as when one hunts a partridge in the mountains. <laughs> so David goes on to say that if Saul kills him there, 
It'd be in the full sight of the Lord. That's why he brings that up. Don't do this in the face of the Lord. You know, so I'm sure that David was hoping that that was going to bring some conviction on King Saul. Then David goes on to humble himself, and he says that I'm not worth any more than a flea to you. You know, so Saul shouldn't even waste his time on chasing him. And when David mentions the partridge hunt, you know, it's kind of interesting because a partridge, when it is being chased, instead of flying away, it's got wings and it can fly. Instead of doing that, it'll run on foot instead of flying like, wait, why it does it? I don't know, but that's kind of a strange thing about that bird. And when it gets tired of running, then it stops because it's got no more energy and it can easily be caught, you know? So David's comparing himself to an animal that could easily be caught sooner or later. And it's, it's kind of like, you know, what's the sport in that? Why are you chasing a guy that is no competition to catch him, right? You know, so he's, weighing, he's saying, why are you wasting your time? I'm just not worth it. You know, thinking about that animal is funny. We got a rabbit. You know, we got some rabbits now in the place there, and uh, one of them got loose, and our son David was trying to chase the thing, and he chased it around the yard twice, and I didn't know this, but my, my boys were telling me there's this thing about some animals that they, they have energy to run, but they don't have stamina. <laughs> so once they run out their energy, they have to stop. So David's chasing this thing twice, and finally it just stops. It's out of energy. Can't, nothing else to go. So David was able to go up and grab it and, and put it back in the pen, you know. So the Lord has designed us, thankfully. We can have stamina and keep going. And it's probably one of the things that helps us have the rule over the animal kingdom, right? But this is the same thing with this bird, this partridge. David's saying, there's only so much energy I got, you know. You chase me enough, I'm out of energy. You're going to catch me. And, and why waste your time? I'm not your enemy. I'm your servant. So it goes on then in verse 21. It says, then Saul said, I have sinned. Wow, Lord got through, got through that messed up mind, right? I have sinned, return, my son David, for I will harm you no more because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Indeed, I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. So Saul admits, first of all, that he sinned by what he was doing. That's amazing. That conviction really got to him. And then he also admits he played the fool and then he made a huge mistake. You know, David must have gotten through by the grace of God. And as I said, it's, it's risky trying to reason with the crazy man, but David found grace in doing this and doing things God's way. Saul even promised here that he would not try to hurt David anymore. Was David relieved? At least at the moment, he might have been. <laughs> I think this is the last recorded meeting we have between Saul and David. So from what we can tell, it's really over for Saul. He doesn't cause a problem anymore for David in that sense. Uh, he's still going to have a problem in the next chapter, but we'll get to that later. But what Saul said here at the end of verse 21 was actually the legacy of his life. And it's very sad. He played the fool and he erred exceedingly. If you look at Saul's life, that's basically the story of his life, you know? This is not what you want to leave behind as the story of your life. So come to the Lord and live for the Lord so you don't come to the end of your days with such a sad testimony like Saul had here. Uh, verse 22, David answered and he said, here is the king's spear. Let one of the young men come over and get it. So David returns Saul's spear and he wisely says, 
just let one of your young men come over to get it. So he's still not trusting everything here, and I don't blame him, you know. Uh, still, there's a bit of precaution here taken, and probably for good reason, because he knows Saul really is unstable in his attitude. I mean, he can flip pretty fast here. So verse 23 goes on. May the Lord repay every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered you into my hand today, but I would not stretch out my hand against the Lord, laid, uh, the Lord's anointed. So David is asking here for the Lord's blessing for himself, for doing what was right and sparing Saul's life. And I think he had a good reason to do so because David passed the test. He had a chance to do the wrong thing, but he submitted here and said, no, this is God's anointing. His, his hand's on this. He's doing this. I have no right to intervene, so I'm just going to leave that in God's hands. You know, this whole thing was another test to see if David would honor the Lord in his choices rather than doing his own thing or even listening to ungodly advice from those who were close to him because the temptation was there, right? David consistently saw Saul as God's anointed, and that's how he was able to avoid the temptation to do the wrong thing. You know, when we choose to see things from God's perspective, it will help us avoid the temptation to do the wrong thing. You know, there are times when uh, we get riled up because of things that happen. And if we remember, you know, that when people do something against us or even offend us in a really bad way, to remember, first of all, Jesus died for that person. He paid for their sins on the cross. They may not have received it yet. They may not ever receive it in this life. But Jesus died for them. And that should give us some grace to extend. And David here, he knew this is God's anointed. So that's how he got grace, to avoid the temptation even to take this in his own hands and deal with it. Verse 24 goes on. And indeed, as your life was valued much this day in my eyes, so let my life be valued much in the eyes of the Lord. Notice David isn't saying, I hope you value my life as much, because he knows Saul's like a roller coaster up and down. But he knows the Lord is stable. And he's saying, may the Lord value my life this much where he's not going to allow my life to be taken. He says, let him deliver me out of all tribulation. So David's hope was that his life would be spared as he spared Saul's life and that his life would be valued as he valued Saul's life. So David was truly hoping to reap what he had sown. And we can hope for the same thing if we do things God's way. If not, you don't want to reap what you've sown. It's not a good thing. Uh, verse 25 goes on. Then Saul said to David, May you be blessed, my son. You shall both do great things and also still prevail. So David went on his way, and Saul returned to his place. Now, I see it very interesting here that before they parted ways, Saul is actually pronouncing a blessing on David. And he even expressed his desire for David to be a success in the future. So what an amazing difference we see uh, in Saul from the time that he set out to kill him at the beginning of this chapter to the very end, when now he's blessing David, the one he was trying to kill. If this is a small glimpse of some of the things that were in Saul's heart, I mean, if he really had this in him to say, I pray the Lord does bless you, man. I hope you got a great, successful future with the Lord. If those things really were in Saul's heart in any, any, any fashion, just even a little bit, you know, they were tucked away behind all the fleshly stuff that he did on the outside. What a shame that he didn't let this be the guiding light of his life. 
You know, someone said that if this was true, then Saul had great potential in his life to live for the Lord, but he never allowed it to come to the surface. I had a chance to witness to a man that I knew one time who was on his deathbed. I had known him for a few years, but I'd never taken the time to really talk to him about Jesus. And when I heard that he had cancer, and this is a number of years ago, I heard he had cancer, he wasn't doing well, I thought, you know, I need to go see this guy in the hospital because it might be my last chance to tell him about Jesus. When I went in to see him, just as I, I told him about Jesus and how Jesus died to offer him eternal life, he stopped me at the end and he, he admitted with kind of a small smile. He said, I accepted Christ earlier in my life, so I'm a Christian. I just never lived for the Lord. Wow. I was happy to hear, you know, that this guy had received Christ, but I was very sad to hear his testimony, admitting that he'd never lived for the Lord. Wow. What was he going to say when he saw Jesus? And when I saw him, he was on his deathbed. I don't believe he made it out of the hospital, I think. Those were his last days. So in a few days, he's going to stand in the presence of Jesus, you know. What is he going to say? Thanks for saving me. Sorry I didn't do anything for you in return. Wow. I can't imagine the shame of a person. You know, what they would feel is they stand before the one who gave his perfect life for them on the cross. And I hope and pray that none of us will have to face Jesus empty-handed like that, you know. That's how the Lord got me to open my heart to want to serve him, however, and didn't know it meant the ministry. But I had the thought that one time, and I told you this before, that as I was sitting in church before the church started at the church we were attending at the time, I thought, man, I hate to come to the end of my days and have to say to Jesus, I never did anything for you. So my simple prayer was, Lord, please use me. And I had no clue down the road what the Lord was going to do, that he was going to put me in ministry and, and use our family and everything. I had no idea that was coming. But I'm very thankful for that prayer, thankful for the conviction God gave me. So we learn from this study today that we do have an enemy who is relentless. But when he comes after us, we need to do the things God's way no matter what and no matter how strong the temptation to do otherwise. Doing things God's way is what will bring us success and blessing in the eyes of the Lord. So may we pass every test we're going to face this coming week. And of course, the greatest test for anyone to pass is the test for eternal life. The only right answer for that test is Jesus. All other answers are wrong. So if you don't know if you have eternal life, then I will tell you the right answer to pass the test. It's Jesus. Ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins. Thank you for dying on the cross to pay for your sins. Ask him to come into your life and to take over your life. He loves you and he only wants what's best for you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this passage today. I pray, Lord, that you have touched our hearts. I pray you've comforted us to know if the enemy's breathing on our neck that we're okay, that you've got this, that we're safe in Christ. Lord, I pray, too, if we've fallen for the temptations of taking the easy way out, of not doing things your way, I pray today, Lord, you would take us past those things. Help us to repent. Help us to change our mind, to change our actions and say, Lord, from this day forward, I'm going to do things your way. And I pray you stop me, Lord, if I'm about to do anything that's foolish and it's against your path and your way of doing things. So, Lord, I want to thank you for the folks that are here today. I pray you gave us a heart to hear your word. 
I pray for those who couldn't be with us, Lord. I pray that you'd encourage them, that you'd strengthen them, and you'd help them. And uh, Lord, I pray if, uh, for those who are able to listen through the live stream and through other uh, media options, Lord, that I pray that you would encourage their heart. Let them know that you care about them so much. Lord, we want to give you all the praise, honor, and glory for this. In Jesus' name, amen.